All right, have fun. Thanks. I take every I take all pointers, all pointers, especially from Dr. Silvernail. Well, good morning. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Mike Vanderlinden. And uh, I'm not actually an officer of the church, so it might surprise you or you might be wondering why it is that I get to preach this morning. And well, the reason for that is I'm a candidate under care of the presbytery. And what that means is, is that I'm in the process of trying to discern whether the Lord might be calling me into full-time ministry in the future. And, and I must admit, some days I think he is, some days I'm hoping he, he's not. This morning, uh, I have mixed feelings, and that's because of the subject that I'm going to be preaching on. But I am excited to have the, every opportunity to preach God's Word, because um, it's an opportunity for me to grow, and that's certainly true about the sermon this morning, as I had to apply that to myself first. Well, this morning's sermon is the eighth sermon in a series titled Proverbs, Wisdom for Life. As a way of reminder, we've been preaching on topics from Proverbs instead of verse to verse. And like I said, this morning's topic is the topic of anger, specifically how we manage our anger. So as we prepare to look at Proverbs, I do want to start by, by reminding us, since we've been preaching through Proverbs for a while, and it's been a while since we were in chapter 1, that this is the purpose of Proverbs, that we would know wisdom and instruction, that we would understand words of insight and receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. Proverbs is meant to give prudence to the simple and knowledge and discretion to the youth. Well, let's begin by asking God to bless our time. Bless our time with the power of the Spirit so that we could have eyes to see Him, ears to hear Him through His Word, and hearts to respond to the Word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we do come before you a needy people, a people that need the Scriptures, that need your Word, that need your Spirit to guide us, to teach us, to instruct us, to, to give us simple people wisdom in how to live. And so we ask you for it, knowing that you are generous and good. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, although I feel like I'm getting to know everybody pretty well, there's a few things you might not know about me, so I thought I would include some of those in the sermon. One is that I'm a horse guy. You might not know that about me. I like horses, um, but I didn't actually grow up riding horses. You know, I grew up with workhorses. They're, they're bigger, they're taller, they're stronger. Um, but the nice thing is they're also more gentle. My grandfather always had a couple of workhorses around. And he would train workhorses occasionally, and occasionally he would come back without those workhorses. And we would say, well, don't you know where your horses are? He says, oh, I know right where they are. <laughs> They'll be home later. So we, you know, as a, a, as a kid growing up, we would, they were just part of our experience. Every week we would go to my grandparents. We would hang out with these workhorses. We'd feed them and we would pet them, and, and they just loved us. As I got older, I even would have a chance occasionally to, uh, to drive these horses, which was... Um, which was an enlightening experience with someone, you know, a horses that are that strong that really want to move forward. Well, something else you don't know about me probably is that I really love an underdog story. You know, the one where the little guy wins, 
Now you could think of the movies like Rudy or McFarland. And so one of my favorite movies is, is uh, Seabiscuit. That's probably because Seabiscuit is a horse, and he happens to be an underdog in the story. What you might not know about Seabiscuit, though, is he was not a triple crown winner. He had nothing to do with that type of racing. He was just a regular old thoroughbred racehorse. And his story started in 1936. Uh, America had just uh, started to recover from the Depression, and people were looking for something to get behind. And so Seabiscuit stormed onto the racing scene, and from 1936 to 1940, he just had this story that captivated America. It was a story of victory and defeat and a, a major injury and an amazing recovery. Now in the movie, of course, the movie centers on his career, but there's all these supporting characters. You know, they each have their own little story to tell. There's the owner, Charles Howard. Uh, he was a self-made businessman. And even though he was very successful, he had some real heartache in his life, some real tragedy. There's Tom Smith. He was the, the trainer of Seabiscuit. He was a loner, and at the time, everybody just considered him kind of quirky and out-of-date, an old-timer. Then there was the jockey. His name was Red Pollard. Jockey uh, that was big for racing standards, so big that he wasn't really considered a contender because, you know, big guys weigh too much when it comes to racing. He lived a hard life during the Depression and always seemed to be carrying this chip on his shoulder. Well, there's this one scene in the movie that's toward the beginning of Steve Biscuit's career. It's their first big race, and the train and the jockey have, have come upon this strategy. They're going to lay back in the race, they're going to stay behind the contender, and in the end, they're going to surge past him and win. So they put all the horses in the gate, you know, the gate's open, right, the bell rings, they, they, you can just picture the scene, right, they're charging down the back straightaway. When all of a sudden, this, this horse that's not a contender comes up and fouls Red Pollard and Seabiscuit. And, and Pollard, he just can't let it go. He's got to charge after this offending horse. Well, in his haste to get back at the offender, he loses sight of their plan, and in the end, loses the race too. And so afterwards, there's this scene like in the locker room where the jockey is there and the trainer's there and the owner's there. And you can understand the trainer's a little upset. He's a little angry and he just keeps asking Pollard, what were you thinking? I thought we had a plan. Right? Well, the jockey, you know, he's angry too. And his response is one that just says he's, he's trying to make the, the trainer understand. But he fouled me. That guy fouled me. What was I supposed to do? Let him get away with that? Well, anyhow, uh, they're both upset. But Charles Howard, he's, he's different. I don't know if it's the heartache in his life or just the way he's dealt with people. Maybe it's just his personality. But right in the middle of all this raw, raw emotion, even though he might be the one that has the most right to be feeling fouled, right? he stops the whole entire argument by asking one question. And he looks at the jockey and he says, son, why are you so angry? Why are you so angry? Now, that's a great response, isn't it? I mean, even though he probably feels fouled himself, and it makes me wonder, do you ever feel fouled by life? I mean, do you feel fouled by life? And when you do, how do you react? Well, if you receive this weekly uh, church update, where the preacher gets to write a little blurb, then you know that I don't usually react like Charles Howard. 
No, I'm, I'm way more like the jockey. I'm, uh, I'm a person who really feels like I have to charge after the person that followed me, screaming, you followed me, get back here. Well, there's all sorts of things in my life that make that happen. I mean, the, the demands of work, the issues that come up in marriage, the difficulties of raising children, I do have teenagers now. The pressure of schoolwork, just driving in northern Virginia can make me feel frustrated and fouled. And yes, very, very angry. Do you know how hard it is to write a sermon about anger when you're angry? I mean, there's a whole lot in life that can really make us angry, that can make us want to scream, he fouled me. Now, I have to be careful here. I don't want our idea of anger this morning to be overly simple. right? Now, sometimes when we get angry, we should be angry, right? Sometimes when we get angry, we should be angry. There are things that should make us angry, like injustice, when the poor are being oppressed, when the helpless are being murdered. I mean, these things should make us angry, and anger should move us to action. Anger is a part of life. It's a valid emotion, but that's really another whole sermon, right? We could title that, Anger is a Valid Emotion. But let's be honest, usually our anger is not that noble, is it? Usually we're angry because we're not getting something we think we need or deserve. We think we've been fouled. Sometimes that's not true. That's the kind of anger that's at the center of this morning's sermon. Because if we're not careful, that kind of anger can become a way of life. Right? Instead of a valid emotion that's just part of life. And this kind of anger can especially become a way of life with those closest to us. Husbands can make their wives angry. Wives can make their husbands angry. Parents can make their children angry. Did you believe that children can actually make their parents angry too? We get angry at brothers and sisters. We get angry at friends. We get angry at bosses and employees and even those strangers that are driving in Northern Virginia on our highways. It can be overwhelming to think about all those things that can make us angry. So here's the first thing I learned as I studied through Proverbs. Proverbs is really less concerned about what makes us angry and really more concerned about how we respond to that emotion of anger. Now let me say that again. What Proverbs actually talks about, what Proverbs is actually concerned with is how you respond to the emotion of anger and how you respond to the emotion of anger in those around you. Now that's not to say that wisdom doesn't deal with why we're angry. But this morning we are going to be focusing on just how we respond. Now here's why this is important. It's important how we respond because how we respond has a direct, and I would say an immediate effect on our relationships. You knew that, right? I mean, that's your experience, right? Your experience is that how you respond to your anger affects those around you, and how you respond to others' anger affects those around you. What's the title of our sermon series again? Proverbs, Wisdom for Life. And God, by design, has created relationships as an integral part of our lives. We are meant to be in relationship to one another. Now, we're just going to look at three things this morning that Proverbs has to say about anger. First, when it comes to your own anger, wisdom says be cautious. Second, when it comes to someone else's anger, 
Wisdom says be gentle. And third, when it comes to managing anger, wisdom says be self-controlled. Be cautious, be gentle, and be self-controlled. So let's start by looking at Proverbs 14. Proverbs chapter 14, and we're going to be between chapters 14 and chapter 18, just about the whole time, so it should be easy to follow along. Proverbs chapter 14, verses 16 through 17 says this, One who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. A man of quick temper acts foolishly, and a man of evil devices is hated. So when it comes to your own anger, wisdom says be cautious. A wise man is cautious with his anger, and he's cautious because it's really easy for his anger to lead to sin. I find it helpful in these two verses to kind of think about it in reverse. A man of evil devices is hated. A man of quick temper, that's pointing to our anger, right? A man of quick temper acts foolishly. A fool is reckless and careless. Therefore, since we know how Proverbs always gives us the opposite, we can conclude on our own that a wise man is not like the fool. Instead, a wise man is cautious, and he turns away from evil. And he does that even when he's angry. He does that even when he's angry. Now, of course, man here is used as a universal, so that this applies to women too. Oh, and it applies to young and old as well, right? Everyone is called to be cautious when they're angry. But what does it look like to be cautious? It's interesting, I just finished taking Hebrew, and the root word for Hebrew here in the text, the one translated cautious, is also the word that can be translated fear. But since context rules in Hebrew, the context here is not the kind of fear that would cause us to be afraid, Right? to ta- cause us to run away screaming out of fear. It's a, it's a caution that tells us to be careful, to be thoughtful about what we're about to do. Now, the teenagers and younger adults can correct me if I'm wrong, but let's say you're on the paintball field and you're trying to take the other team's flag or whatever it is you do to win the game. Right? You're trying to win, and my guess is in order to win, you know you can't be reckless, right? You're not careless, at least not if you want to stay in the game for long. Right? You have to think about what you're doing. You're cautious. And that caution is rooted at least a little in what might happen if you're reckless. And your reaction, your reaction, what you decide to do is based upon the outcome that you want. Right? You want to stay in the game and you want to win. It's not based on how you feel, because you might be feeling like you can take the other team easily while the theme song from Mission Impossible plays in the back of your head. Right? But the rest of the team is hoping that your decision is based a little more in reality. Well, that's what caution looks like here when you're dealing with your anger. It's looking at the end, your desired result, instead of the current circumstance. Let me say it again. It's looking at the end, the desired result, instead of the current circumstance. It's considering the outcome and then reacting with what the outcome is that you want. It's setting aside all of those sinful thoughts of revenge. 
or retribution or screaming after the other person. You followed me. Get back here. And instead, it's carefully considering how your anger will affect the relationship with who you're interacting with. So when's the last time you made a real effort, when you're angry, that is, to stop and think about an outcome? Stop and think about the result you're looking for. To stop and think about the relationship that you have with the person you're interacting with. And you did all this while you were angry. In my case, maybe you can relate, it's usually the other way around, right? We tend to respond to our anger immediately, carelessly, recklessly, and then we're just kind of stuck with the result. You know, Proverbs, by the way, doesn't call that wisdom. Bill Heibel makes a really good point about this in his book called Making Life Work. He says, in order to have better reactions to our anger, the first thing we have to do is learn to recognize when we're beginning to get angry. Listen to what he writes. He says, maybe it's a stiffening of our postures, a clenching of our fists, a setting of our jaws. Maybe it's a rising sense of frustration or confusion, impatience or irritability. Maybe we can detect it in our tone of voice. We need to become aware of when our emotional temperature is rising, and the sooner, the better. Well, I, could, I can relate to that. I mean, do you recognize any of these traits in your own experience of anger? I suspect that some of them are hitting a little close to home, because I know they are for me. And when he says the sooner, the better, I think that's a great idea. I mean, think about it. Think about how it might work. The sooner you can recognize that you're getting angry, the sooner you can start to respond with caution. The sooner you start exercising caution, the sooner you can think about the the outcome. And the sooner you're thinking about the outcome, the sooner you can begin to react with a proper response to your emotion of anger. A response that is cautiously considering how to protect your relationships. See, when you feel followed by life, when you're angry, we have this tendency to want revenge instead of reconciliation. It seems way easier, doesn't it, to cultivate a feud than a friendship? And in the end, instead of growing closer, instead of drawing those around us in, we tend to push them away. And that's especially true, right? Especially true with those that are closest to us, the ones that we love the most. Because let's be honest, they're the ones that really see us, right? Well, I'd like to encourage each of you to spend some time thinking this morning about how to recognize anger in yourself. The beginning pangs of anger before they get out of control and explode. Now, one of the ways that you might do that is to ask someone that you trust to gently share with you when they know you're getting angry. That's a tough one. (laughs) That's a really tough one, isn't it? I mean, letting someone else speak into your life about something that you know you're struggling with. But if you can experience someone else being gentle with you as they share with you when you're getting angry, it will put you in a position that helps you to be gentle with others when you see them getting angry. You see, first, wisdom says, Be cautious with your own anger. But then it says, when other people are angry, 
you need to be gentle. Turn over a couple of pages there to Proverbs chapter 15, where we're going to look at what wisdom has to say about other people's anger and being gentle. It's the very first two verses, Proverbs 15, 1 and 2. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. Now the comparison here is between the reckless man and the cautious man, right? The quick-tempered man and the man slow to anger. It's a comparison between the fool who foolishly responds with a harsh word and the wise man who commends knowledge with a gentle and soft answer. Yeah, actually some translations use gentle, some use the word soft, because the word here includes all of those senses, gentle and tender and also delicate and even a sense of weakness. And Proverbs says that even in the middle of an angry outburst, where it's obvious the other person feels fouled and maybe even angry at you, the wise man must respond gently, tenderly, delicately, thinking about, again, the outcome of his response. Now, since we're talking this morning about gentleness, maybe we should take a little time to talk about what gentleness is because I think gentleness is a hard thing. Uh, I think we don't quite understand exactly how Scripture describes it. You see, it might be easy to think that gentleness is just a personality trait, right? Some people have it, some people don't. And to be honest, I don't, so get over it. Right? But that's not what Scripture says. That's not what, I'm sorry, that's not what Scripture says, right? Scripture calls gentleness a fruit of the Spirit. Right? It's not a personality trait. In Galatians 5, Paul's talking about the Holy Spirit and the gift of the Holy Spirit towards us, and he's talking about unity, which is about relationships. And he says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Well, let me just remind you that when it says the fruit of the Spirit, fruit there is singular. That means fruit comes bundled together like a bunch of bananas, right? You don't just get one or two. You don't even get just a few. You get them all. You should be exercising them all. They're not individual personality traits. They're what we would call Christian virtues. So, do you ever pray for gentleness? That was just something I came up with, uh, I mean, that I read in one of these books, and it just really struck me. Do you ever pray for gentleness? What a great question. Listen to what one of the theologians wrote. Back in 1839, he said this, Perhaps no grace is less prayed for or less cultivated than gentleness. Indeed, it is considered rather as belonging to natural disposition or external manners than as a Christian virtue. And seldom do we reflect that not to be gentle is sin. Not to be gentle is sin. Man, those are strong words, but, but that's the sentiment represented here in our proverb this morning by the word folly. Right? The mouths of fools pour out folly. Right? They are sinning when they don't respond with gentleness. So, 
What would it look like to respond with gentleness? Uh, in his book called The Fruitful Life by Jerry Bridges, he talks about the fruit of gentleness this way. Gentleness is active. It describes the manner in which we should treat others. It displays a sensitive regard for others and is careful never to be unfeeling for the rights of others. I don't know how you can do all that and still be angry, but I think you can. Because again, anger is a valid emotion. It's how we deal with our anger that we have to deal with this morning. Gentleness has a focus. Right? It has a focus that considers the rights of others. It's sensitive to the rights of others. So it responds delicately to their anger. Remember we said that having someone else gently tell you how they know you're getting angry would be helpful? Here's where it's helpful. It's helpful as you respond to someone else. It teaches you how to respond to them gently. Gentleness isn't weak, though. I think sometimes we think that gentleness means that we're weak. But listen to what Psalm 1835 says about gentleness. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but let me set this up for you. Right here, the psalmist is talking about how powerful the Lord is, how great he is, how strong his right arm is, how able he is to train us for war so that we can pull back a bow of bronze. It's all about strength. And yet he says in verse 35, you have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. The NIV translates that as you stoop down to make me great. I mean, isn't that a great picture? Can you picture the Lord strong and mighty, a rock, our fortress, our salvation, the one who trains us for war, yet he stoops down to make us great, not because he's weak, but because he's gentle. Gentleness is not weak. It's a sign of strength. Would people say that about you when you're responding to their anger? Would they see your gentleness as a strength? Would they think you care about them enough to stoop down and help them, even when they're angry? In our scene from Seabiscuit, it's the owner, isn't it? Charles Howard, who portrays a sense of gentleness. He's the one who's stooping down and being gentle to those around him. And don't you picture it? I mean, it does have a very strong effect on them because his response says he cares about them more than about winning the race. And he cares about them even though he's lost the race and now they're angry. So the next time someone's screaming at you or at least obviously angry with you, wisdom says, strive for gentleness. That means, let's make this a little more pointed, the next time you have a very loud discussion with your teenager, right? or for you teenagers, the next time you have a very loud discussion with your parents, that's right, we all know these discussions happen. Right? I want to ask you this, what would it take to make you strive for gentleness in those situations? Well, how about starting with a commitment to one another? A commitment to be gentle with one another, a commitment that says, even though we disagree, even though we're angry with one another, we care about enough, we care enough about one another to be gentle, even though we both feel fouled. Now, I'm not going to take sides this morning on 
any of the disagreements you may be having, and, and by the way, I'm not just talking to the teenagers now. There's all sorts of disagreements going on, I'm sure, in our congregation or in families around us that we know. But I do want to point out that gentleness, again, is not weakness. It doesn't have to give in to anger. It still promotes the truth. The tongue of the wise still commends knowledge in verse 2. Wisdom still promotes truth. It calls for right living. It, it just does it in such a way that it leaves no doubt in the other person's mind that you care about them. That you're leaving room for them to grow and come to the knowledge of truth. Gentleness is not weak, it's strong. And because it's strong, it's gentle. But you know, gentleness is not just going to happen. And if any of you have tried to be gentle over a period of years or, or weeks or months or whatever, you know it's not just going to happen. It's going to take self-control. Because being gentle is not natural, but it is powerful. So when it comes to your own anger, wisdom says be cautious, right? When it comes to the anger of others, wisdom says to be gentle. Now when it comes to anger, wisdom says be self-controlled. Turn to a couple more pages there to Proverbs chapter 16. We're just going to read verse 32. Proverbs 16, 32 says this, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. I mean, there is power in that verse. And wisdom says that it comes through self-control. In fact, the thread that ties this whole sermon together this morning for us really is this thread of self-control. Whether we want to be cautious or gentle or loving or, or considering our relationships, it all takes the power of self-control. It's that that allows us to do those things. It's the power of self-control that allows us to be gentle when our heart is rising along with our temper. It's the power of self-control that allows us to be cautious when really we just want to rush recklessly ahead, especially when we're angry. But what does taking a city have to do with our anger in relationships? You know, Proverbs 18, verse 19, sheds a little bit of light on this because the writer of Proverbs says this, A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city, and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. I mean, what's your experience with your own anger? You know, when you've been domineering instead of cautious. Or let's say, what's your experience with the anger of others when you've had a harsh response instead of being gentle? Has your response to your own anger or your response to the anger of others resulted in someone being more unyielding than a strong city? It's hard to win a friend back, isn't it? It's hard to win a friend back. It's hard to win a child back. It's hard to win a parent back. It's hard to win acquaintances back. When you're driving down the road, you don't, will never have the chance maybe to win that driver's heart back, right? That you've offended because you're angry. Has the emotion of anger had such free reign in your life that you not only feel fouled, but you feel captured by it? Ruled by it? Uh, even imprisoned by it? I mean, think about your current relationships. Is there one where you think this relationship will never be healed? The bars are too strong. Well, then you need to really hear Proverbs 16.32 again. 
Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. There is power in self-control, but it's not something you can conjure up. It's something you need to ask for. Because it's a gift, a gift given by God through the work of the Spirit that bears fruit by giving us the ability to care about our relationships with one another more than ourselves. It gives us the ability to care about our relationships with one another even in the midst of being angry. Godly self-control sets aside our pride and gives us the heart that longs for reconciliation that longs for restoration, that longs for friendship and unity and peace, even when we feel fouled by life. You know, I was really struck the other day when Pastor Silvernail commented about marriage. And then Rick mentioned it last week as he came to prayer. Hopefully you're starting to remember what, they, what the comment was. Uh, it was this, that marriage, in a sense, is gospel reenactment. Now, this is my translation of what Dr. Silvernail said, since I didn't write it down word for word, but he said something like this, when it comes to spouses, right? when it comes to spouses, it's seeing the future outcome from the present. It's working for the future outcome over time. It's trusting in the process of sanctification at work in one another, right in the middle of all sorts of marital struggles. And I'm going to add, even the ones that make you angry, right? even the ones that make you angry. And I can't help but think, like I did then when he said it, because I was already preparing for the sermon, that wisdom for life from Proverbs is really all about gospel reenactment. In fact, when it comes to the anger, the gospel is God's answer to his own anger. We might even say it's his answer to his own wrath. The gospel is the answer to God's wrath. You see, the Bible says God is angry about our sin. He's angry about our rebellion. He's angry about the fall and all of the injustice that follows. And God's answer to that is the gospel. I mean, for those he is saving, the answer is the cross. God sent his son to save us. Save us from what? Save us from God's wrath. That's what the Bible says. In Romans 5, it says this, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. You know, you've probably encountered many angry people before. Maybe you've even encountered some really angry people before. But you have never encountered anyone more angry than God is about sin. You have never encountered anyone more angry than God is about sin. And, and at the cross, God is saying in a very dramatic way, you fouled me, right? You fouled me, and there's, there's nothing you can do to fix that. I just wanted to mention that this morning, that no amount of caution, no amount of gentleness, no amount of self-control is going to appease God. Only Jesus can appease God's wrath. And he accomplished that for us on the cross. And when he accomplished that, I mean it's finished. We no longer have to live in fear of God's anger. We no longer have to fear condemnation. Our sins are totally and completely forgiven. 
But there's more to the cross than just that. Sometimes in Reformed circles, I wonder if sometimes we get stuck there. I'm saved from my sin. All right, what's next? And we just can't get beyond that answer. You see, the gospel also comes with power. It comes with power to save us, that's true, but it also comes with the power to transform us. It comes with the power to sanctify us. It comes with the power to make us holy. And if you are dealing with anger this morning, you know that you need that power. Because try as you may, you're still angry. So I'm asking, do you believe that God has the power to transform you in such a dramatic way? Do you really believe that you're able to live wisely even when you're angry by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you? Those are hard questions. Well, as many of you know, I was in Africa just at the beginning of the month. We went over there for a couple of weeks. And on the way over, we actually had some extra available weight for our plane ride. So we took a bunch of care packages over to the full-time missionaries. We also took a bunch of books, some study materials. We took medicine. We even took some chai tea latte. One of the books was, was this book about the challenges of sharing the gospel in a culture that's so different from our own. And trust me, Africa, African culture is quite different than American culture. Anyhow, the title was Quest for Power. Well, since the first plane ride was 13 hours long, I thought, well, I'll keep a copy out in my carry-on and, and read it over there to, to see what it says. Well, it completely changed uh, the focus of our devotions. Like we were having devotions with the men every morning that we were working with, the local guys, and it completely changed what we did. Now, this is, this is the idea that, that changed our focus. Now, in America, and you may not agree with me, but in America, we tend to trivialize the spiritual world, right? And we tend to think we're pretty good people. We certainly think we're not sinners, right? So the first thing we need to know in America, in order to understand the gospel, the first thing we need to know is that there is this spiritual reality that we've been ignoring, and second, we need to know that we're sinners. Only then can we understand our need for Jesus. Only then can we understand that Jesus is a loving Savior that came to save me, a sinner. But you see, in Africa, it's not like that. You know, see, their culture is so different. Right at the very core level, for one thing, they still accept that there's a spiritual world that affects this present one. And in fact, they routinely accept that the spirits have power to influence their everyday life. In turn, they, they live with this real fear of the power of darkness and what might happen to them. It's a, such a part of the cultural fabric that outsiders, especially Westerners, have a really hard time understanding it. That's why this guy wrote this book. What this means is this. The first thing they need to hear it isn't that Jesus is a loving Savior, although it's true. The first thing they need to hear is that Jesus is the all-powerful Creator and Lord over all. Right? They need to know, first and foremost, that Christ rules over everything and that He has the power to rule over even the spirits that they fear. So, for example, instead of saying God's grace is a gift that teaches us how much He loves us, it's a gift that saves us and saves us from our sins, and makes us right with God, which is all true, we would change that in the morning. We might say something like this, God's grace comes with power to, to triumph over all enemies that would stand against him, 
Through the power of Christ, evil is subdued, and even the punishment you deserve for sin is covered by the power of Christ's sacrifice at the cross. That's how we would share the gospel with them. And it came about by reading this, this idea that, that for them, it's, it's about a quest for power. Well, there's a lesson, I think, in that for the American church. Because I wonder if once we're convinced that there's a spiritual, there's a spiritual realm, that it's true and it's going on around us, once we're convinced that we're sinners and that we need a Savior, once we're convinced that Jesus is that Savior and we accept Him as our Lord, I wonder if like the Africans, we need to be convinced that Jesus is really all-powerful. Like We need to be convinced that He's really Lord over all things. We need to be convinced that He has the power to rule over us and transform us and sanctify us and make us holy. And that comes to managing our anger. He's even able to accomplish that. Listen to what it says in 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I want you to hear that promise this morning. You are being guarded by God's power, by his strength, by his might, by his strong right arm. And he has proven himself to have the power to conquer by conquering your cold, dead heart and making you alive in Christ. If he is able to do that, then he is able to conquer your anger. He has the power to guard you and to bring you to salvation and to make you perfect and holy in his sight. May God grant us the eyes to see that his wisdom for life, reenacted in the gospel, is powerful enough to change us, even when it comes to the difficult task of managing our anger, our own the anger of others, the anger in our world. Let's pray. Lord, we know that um, you have designed anger to be a valid emotion and you have it yourself. And yet the fall has corrupted ours in such a way that it's often not noble. And so we pray, Lord, that um, you would help us to deal with that anger that's not noble in a way that would glorify you in a way that would help us to stand out in our world and culture and point to the cross, and in a way that would help us to love one another in a way that lets one another know that we care more about them than we do about being mad. We pray this all, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.